right. Thanks, everyone, for joining another Global Stake podcast here today. We are excited. Um, we have a guest, Alex Bodie, on today, who is head of client and portfolio solutions at Runa Digital Assets. As always on these podcasts, we are interested in learning more about institutions, specifically in the crypto and Web3 space, as well as protocols and Web3 builders to learn about their stories, why they're in their space, what they're building, and just to talk interesting topics. So to kind of kick things off, um, Alex would love for you to kind of give us a, a background of you know who you are, your story, what got you interested in Web3, and uh, where you are today. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan, Ryan, Global Stake for having me. Um, so Alex Bodie, um, let's see, grew up in San Diego. That's where I am now. Uh, went to Cornell, played field hockey there, went uh, to finance, like went into the finance field after Cornell started out in sales and trading then spent eight years in quantitative investment management. And from there moved to Runa where, where I've been for about a year and a half now. Um, my journey into crypto is not, is not the familiar story. I think that everyone else kind of has where a friend told them, Hey, you got to hear about Bitcoin. You got to buy it. I'll, I'll send you some. And then they kind of get into that whole rabbit hole. They read the white paper. And then before they know it, they're, you know, trading tokens on Uniswap, you know, on Ethereum. that was not mine at all. Mine was at work. Uh, like I was given a project related to uh, to crypto and Web3 um, from like a more TradFi uh, organization. It was a quant hedge fund called Two Sigma. And they were asking, we should do some you know thematic research on digital assets in a way that's authentic to kind of who, who we are. So what we, the, the kind of main goal of the project was to understand how much of Bitcoin's risk could be explained using traditional risk factor models things that included equities, duration, commodities, currency risk. So this was like early mid 21, ran Bitcoin through. At that time, over 90% of its risk was unexplained using the traditional risk factor model that Two Sigma had. And so they were like, then we looked at the top digital assets and we were like, what's their factor structure? What do their kind of correlations look like? So we, we wrote that paper and it went out and it was, people were so interested Everyone kind of, you know, a lot of people wanted to talk to us about it. They were sharing it. They were reading it. And I I had just looked at it from like, I was just using data, you know, and, and kind of looking at the results and trying to analyze it. I was like, I should really understand kind of what these things are. What is Bitcoin? What is Ethereum? What's Uniswap? Um, so then that's when I started doing kind of my own personal research on it. My boss at Runa, her name's Jennifer Murphy. She started the firm um, with Max Williams. They read the paper, they reached out to me and they were like, hey, we're starting this, this investment firm just focused on digital assets. And then, so that's how I got kind of uh, pulled in to this world. That's wild. So from 2021 to 2022, a very short time frame, you went from not really having any exposure to crypto to joining a specifically native digital asset investment firm. That's very cool. So now that you've joined Runa Digital Assets and Runa's coming up on, it looks like almost two years in business. Um, what specifically is, is Runa Digital Assets main goal and focus in the market? Like what makes them different? What are you guys um, looking to expand going into the new year? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. We just passed our two year mark. Um, we started managing assets October of 21. So been at it for two years, team of five. Uh, we're located in Annapolis, Maryland, right outside of DC. But some of us, including myself, work remotely, um, which is which is great. Um, so what do, what do we kind of believe in? Um, like our core investment beliefs are digital assets have the potential for enormous and exponential value creation. 
it's all about network effects. These are all networks. They benefit from more and more adoption. And if you think about their addressable markets, right, it's, it's global. It's not just limited to a single you know, country like, like the U.S. So we take a very long bias, long-term approach to capture what we think is, is the asymmetric upside return opportunity in digital assets. Sure, they can be down a lot like they were in 2022, but they can be up a, a lot more um, than they have been in, in the past. So that's one. Um, the second is that a Cambrian explosion of tokens is, is going to happen, and it already has happened, but we think a lot of these projects are going to fail. There's somewhere around 10,000 tokens on coin market cap today vast majority of those are going to go to zero. Um, there's a lot of experimentation happening and we think it's our job to find the ones that are going to persist and be around for the long term. So token selection matters a lot. We're active, we're active investment managers in this space. Um, and then the third, this is a really immature market, a lot of unique risks, also unique opportunities. Um, so how do you kind of manage those? I think you need a blend of crypto-specific tools, um, some of which don't even really you know, exist, and we're forming them now. And we can take over a lot of our backgrounds in TradFi and try to kind of make sense uh, of this space. Um, so we try to avoid a lot of like unnecessary operational complexities and just try to keep it pretty simple because the asset class itself is already pretty risky. And then finally, I'll stop after this one, but we do kind of deep research on liquid token projects and try to understand which ones have real traction. Um, and to do that, we need to look at fundamentals, the on-chain kind of data um, of what's happening. And if you look at those fundamentals, that doesn't necessarily always translate to token price. I think longer term it will. Like as this asset class matures, fundamentals are going to matter more and more. But right now, shorter term, medium term, narratives really kind of drive these markets, product announcements, product updates. So how do you kind of blend those two? We think if something doesn't have any tractions, no one's using it. Uh, that's not something that we're excited to invest in, um, but kind of blending those two. What has narratives? What has momentum behind it? And then also what what has you know, true adoption and, and you know, fundamental growth? Nice. So then a follow-up to that would be <clears throat> there are active clients and people out in the market right now in the institutional space looking for companies like yours to partner with. Um, so what, who would be your ideal end client and how would be the best way for them to find you and to actually plug in and start working with you? Yeah. So I think, um, so we manage, we manage uh, investment kind of funds just focused on, on liquid tokens. Um, I think our ideal client or, or where we've seen the the best kind of, fit for us is someone that is excited about this space, understands that there's a long-term, you know, return opportunity here. Um, there's a diversification opportunity here, but they don't want to manage it themselves. You know, they're like, I, I, I could just hold Bitcoin, which I, I think is a great investment option. But if you want, you know, kind of some more active management exposure to tokens that might have higher risk, but higher return opportunities than Bitcoin, then that's the people that I think would come to us to help us give them those those exposures. Um, and you can find us, we, we you know, our website is runadigitalassets.com. We have a contact form there. Um, you, you can also find us on, on LinkedIn, Runa Digital Assets. We're pretty active on there as well. Awesome. Love it. Appreciate the high level overview of your background, as well as the company and what RDA is doing. But let's kind of get into some topics uh, of relevancy for the day. Um, so specifically, Kind of want to get your perspective on kind of the market that we're in right now. Maybe if you have a couple bullet points that you can dive a little bit deeper in and, and give people kind of a, a broad perspective of what's to come here in the near future. 
Yeah. I, so Jennifer, Jennifer Murphy, the kind of the founder of, of Runa, she always says the first kind of step of investing is understanding what market regime or what market environment you're in. So to kind of give some you know data around that, we're right now we're in a very low liquidity environment for liquid tokens. Um, if you look at exchange volumes globally, those have dropped by more than 30 percent uh, this year. If you look at December until uh, that's through end of September. Uh, so low, low liquidity. Usually when you're in a low liquidity environment, that translates to higher risk. But that's not what we've seen. We're in a low liquidity and low volatility environment. Bitcoin's volatility is usually around, you know, longer term. It's usually around 80%. It's now around 30. So that's a lot higher than than traditional asset classes like bonds and equities. But compared to Bitcoin's own history, it's it's gone down a lot. Um, similar kind of pattern for altcoins. Some of them 200% annualized balls, and now a lot of them are below 100. So it's kind of an interesting environment where you have low liquidity, but also low risk. And then at the same time, um, correlations, especially with equities and other traditional assets. In the in the past, you know, it's kind of bounced around zero, some periods where it's positive, some periods where it's negative. Last year in 2022, uh, the correlation between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ reached an all-time high of somewhere around 60%. So you kind of, you lost a little bit of diversification last year uh, by investing in this asset class. Now this year, it's been on a march towards zero. Um more recently, it's bounced a little bit off of uh, kind of the zero mark. But I think the question from here is, where is it going to go? Is it going to kind of rise back up to the levels that we've seen last year? Is it going to stay low? And I think a lot of that depends on what's going to drive markets. Is it more macro, recessionary fears, geopolitical risks? Or is it more crypto-specific risks like the having um, a Bitcoin spot ETF, which we can kind of get into? But um, I think those are kind of the, the questions that we're thinking about right now. What's what's what kind of risk factors are going to weigh on markets more from here, and how will that change the environment that we're in? Of course, yeah. So a kind of follow up question around the Bitcoin having. So, in in my perspective, uh, previously worked at Coinbase uh, on the institutional account management team, and a lot of the clients that I covered there, and even here at Global Stake, um, I see a very split perspective on the four year cycles. Personally, so I want your thoughts on this. I personally feel um, it rhymes. I think the four-year cycle has a lot of merit to it. Uh, I personally believe that a bull market, regardless of necessarily uh, a black swan event, but regardless of what's going on regulatory-wise, mostly in the world, I think after the Bitcoin happening, historically, roughly 200 days after the happening, a bull market roughly starts. Um, not saying that that's going to happen again. Past performance is not indicative of future performance, but kind of want to know what your perspective is truly. Do you think that it is four-year cycles, or do you think that we're going to start to break away from the four-year cycles now that the market's starting to mature more? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I guess for those who aren't familiar with what the, the halving is, is it the amount of Bitcoin that's rewarded to miners every block is cut in half every four years. So in April of next year, that amount is going to be cut in half. So Bitcoin's inflation rate is going to drop to, I think, around 1.8% or somewhere around there. Um, so less supply coming to market and like Jordan just said, around these havings in the past, there's been you know really great spot kind of performance, uh, price performance around uh, those havings. It's not mechanical. It's not guaranteed. Right? Like there's nothing that says okay, as soon as this happens in the coat, you know the the price has to go up. So I think what we can do is look at look at history. Like you said, it's not going to be exact, but it rhymes. And then kind of also step out of that and be like, hey, that might be one tailwind, but what are the other kind of risks and maybe other things happening in um, in markets 
that could cause this cycle to to continue or not. And I think when we look at that, there's there are there are risks for sure, but I think there's a lot to be excited about. I mean, you have the the current um, the current kind of tightening cycle coming to a close. Easing is expected in 2024. That's going to benefit all risk assets, including uh, Bitcoin and other digital assets. You have regulatory risk for crypto that entered the year very high, uh, but it's been declining. I think we, we think it peaked when the SEC sued Coinbase and Binance um, in June. And since then, the SEC has been dealt a few pretty big blows. Um, one to, to Ripple Labs, in which they said XRP, you know, sold to retail customers was was not a securities offering. And the second was, uh, you know, the, the a judge basically ruled the SEC acted arbitrarily and capriciously in their ruling to not allow Grayscale to convert GBTC to an ETF. So those are pretty, that's, that's pretty big uh, that you have the court stepping in, um, you know, against the SEC. So we think regulatory risk is coming down. Um, another kind of tailwind is uh, there's been all these filings for a Bitcoin spot ETF, and that would be huge for mainstream investment adoption of Bitcoin, adding it to, you know, anywhere where you can add an, an ETF, including retirement accounts. So we think that's a win, not an if. Um, and then finally, uh, there's some other kind of more, these are in the weeds, but like there are some Ethereum investment uh, or improvement proposals rather that are coming probably in the next, uh, I don't know, later this quarter, early next year that, uh, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint are, are really exciting for kind of helping scale Ethereum cause, you know, make transactions on the Ethereum network and its layer twos, uh, you know, more cost effective, I should say. So a lot of positives in addition to the Bitcoin having um, that I think we're, we're excited about. And we think that we're in a bull market. I think that's a controversial thing to say right now. Uh, but that's where we, we, we do think that we're in the early innings of a bull market right now. Those are great points. So then out of curiosity to elaborate, I guess, even further, um, Bitcoin obviously is the most dominant. ETH comes in uh, as substantially the second player. Not really anybody's close to it. There's a lot of really other great layer one projects such as Polkadot or Solana or, or Cardano or what have you. But curious, curious on your perspective of this, when a Bitcoin uh, ETF, because I don't think it's a matter of if, it's it's really when, is approved. And it almost sounds like it'll be sometime next year. I would venture to guess that an ETH ETF would be approved shortly after um, so in that scenario, what is your thought process on the overall market dominance? Um, cause I have read and heard some people discuss that they believe there'll be a huge breakaway that Bitcoin in theory, let's say could have uh, a $1 trillion market cap on its own or one and a half trillion and none of the alts would follow. Um, do you think theoretically that's how it could be Bitcoin and ETH just like make such a, a drastic move away because of the spot Bitcoin and ETH ETF and the market doesn't follow or kind of what are your thought processes there on alt layer ones and L2s? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that could, that could happen. Um, I think, you know, just, just the pure kind of investment adoption could push prices and kind of the market caps of those majors and just further separate them from altcoins. But what we're seeing right now is coming out of the bear market, the majors are leading Bitcoin and ETH because they are the kind of the lowest risk, safest, most mature, uh, you know, digital assets out there. Then I think once the the market, the bull market starts to really form, you get more euphoria. Um, I think it could be the case that people kind of move further along the risk spectrum and get hungrier and greedier for more returns. Um, so I think that could, that kind of just natural behavior, and we've seen it at other cycles, move towards, you know, more altcoins. 
So we have not, we have certainly not given up on, on altcoins. What we're seeing right now, is, I talked about correlations with macro. Now correlations within crypto have, uh, have kind of have dropped and there's more dispersion. So you see some altcoins that are not really correlated with the rest of the market. So that's great for token selection, you know, managers like us, where we can kind of find, you know, pockets where things are really have the potential to, to outperform. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't really have a view strongly one way or the other, but I would say we are definitely still invested in, uh, in altcoins and see opportunity there for the long term. So then to continue on that train of thought, I, I kind of want your perspective on ETH in general. So when the Chappelle upgrade happened, it was averaging 45, I think at one point it was close to 50, 55 days to onboard to stake to Ethereum. Uh, the overall market average was somewhere around 6 to 7% when it first happened. Everyone knew that as more ETH um, was staked, that that would come down. So here we are six months plus later, the average market returns are showing maybe 3.57 was the last I saw, saw today for a market average of ETH stake return. What are your thoughts on institutions holding ETH right now and staking it when T-bills are averaging close to 5%, um, knowing that in theory, uh, as most people seem to think, a traditional perspective of a bull market might not be for 18 months plus, do you think we might see uh, maybe not mass influx, but a mass exit or a small, a substantial exit of ETH as people look to achieve higher yields elsewhere as ETH trades sideways? Yeah, I think uh, that higher kind of, risk-free benchmark in the, in the, you know, traditional market side, that 5% or so uh, treasury yield, it puts pressure on everything. Um, so it could certainly put pressure on, on ETH staking. I think, I think it's more putting pressure though on stable coins than, than ETH staking, because with stable coins, you don't have exposure to kind of the upside that you would of ETH, but you're not getting any of that yield. So I think the opportunity cost of sitting in a USDC or USDT um, is pretty high right now. And stable coins, you know, kind of are, they, they, they have certainly fallen in, in market cap this year. And what you've seen is trying to bring that 5% yield on chain, you know, by tokenizing money market funds or tokenizing BlackRock short duration ETFs um, so that people can still earn that yield while sitting in, you know, like a, a risk a risk-free or, or, you know, lowly volatile TradFi asset, uh, but still staying on chain and not, not, you know, going, uh, you know, off-ramping. Yeah. Your former employer offers 5% on USDC at Coinbase. So there, there is that opportunity out there for stable coins to still earn yield um, in the market. So I, I do wonder how that dynamic will play out and what we'll see shift around in Web3. Yeah, I think yield bearing stable coins. I mean, we're already starting to see it like yeah, Coinbase on USDC, but also like uh, Makers Die. Now they have SDI where you can earn yield. And I think Frax just came out with a product yesterday, um, SFRAX. So I think yield bearing stable coins and passing off some of that yield to the to the token holders, uh, th- there's going to be innovation there, continue to be innovation there. So then separately, I think I saw on LinkedIn, you recently attended Centrifuge's Real World Asset Summit. So since we're talking about stable coins in general already, um, I think I had read somewhere you had mentioned that stable coins were the first real world asset with mainstream adoption. Not sure if there's anything you want to kind of contribute based on the recent conference you attended. 
Yeah, so that that conference was great. It was the first uh, the first real world asset summit. Uh, it was hosted by Centrifuge, Coinbase, and, and some others. Uh, you know, sponsored it, and it was kind of funny because it was it was definitely crypto focused, but still it felt like a lot of like you know tradfi, super professional. You had some people in in suits, uh, but a really productive day. And I think there was there were some spicy kind of there's spicy conversations that happened. People, a lot of debates uh, back and forth on how real real world assets are. Is it real or is it hype? Um, and if you look at like kind of tokens of some of these real world asset projects, Centrifuge being one, Maker another, they've done really well uh, this this year. And Maker's revenues, I think over half, right, are driven by real world assets now. Maker as like a, as a project. So there's definitely some real fundamental growth happening. Uh, I think one of the consensus takeaways from the conference was exactly what you just said, Jordan, that stable coins are the OG real, real world asset. They brought real world assets, US dollars in, mo- in you know, most stable coin cases on chain. Um, so you can just send US dollars to someone without a bank account overseas on a blockchain. It happens and you know, could happen in less than 0.5 seconds in the case of Solana and for very low fees. So I now think now the market cap of stablecoins somewhere around 120 billion dollars. Um, we think that that's yeah they have it has found product market fit. There's a real use case. Stablecoins in some cases are crypto's killer app right now. Um, so kind of the next question is what's what's next? What are some other real world assets that we're going to see on on chain? Um, substantial growth in bringing U.S. Treasury yields on chain, which we just talked about. Um, tokenizing bonds, equities. Some people think, you know, it's going to be private market funds um, that'll come on chain, like, you know, shares of, say, like a, a KKR or Hamilton Lane, um, trading those on chain just creates more accessibility, operational efficiencies uh, and fractionalization. So there were there were some debates on kind of what's next from here, you know, um, but that was one debate. Another good debate was on uh, and it's it's not really directly related to real world assets, but permission versus permissionless. Uh, kind of blockchains, uh, because a lot of these TradFi firms, like a JP Morgan or a Citibank, they are experimenting and uh, you know building with blockchain technology. But in a lot of cases, they're building their own private blockchains. Right, you have to be permissioned to to use it. Um, and so, kind of, what does that look like in the future? Are they going to kind of move away from a private model, hopefully, like more towards a, a public model? Are they going to have to speak with public blockchains like Ethereum? So, how do they do that through bridges, et cetera? So, there was a lot of great debate uh, around that. Um, yeah, so it was a it was a good conference. A lot of a lot of things to to go away and think about. I guess so. From a regulatory standpoint. Um... I guess we can make this a very high level type regulatory type question. Do you think that the United States government will start, and this is just in theory here, lean more favorably towards regulatory clarity between now and the election? Or do you think it'll be after the 2024 election before we start to see true clarity uh, emerge? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I, I feel maybe this is a a pessimistic take, but I think it's just going to take, it's going to take a really long time to get clear kind of uh, public policy around crypto here in the U.S. I think uh, it's unfortunate because some other countries are are further ahead and they're making real progress on this and they're outlining kind of the rules of the road to operate safely uh, in this uh, 
in this asset class. So I, I think it's going to take more time in the U.S. It's what we need. And I think that's a big hurdle right now for institutions to fully come in here um, is to get that kind of uh, regulatory regulatory clarity. Um, so, yeah, I think it's probably going to be it's going to be a long, uh, a long road ahead. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. Well, I guess last question to wrap everything up. Is there any final point that you want people to be well aware of, either something that you're personally doing, Rune is personally doing, or just something that's on your heart or your mind that you just want people to be aware of? Um, yes. So I think one, uh, I guess a, a pushback that we've seen is that how do you actually, there, there's no way to value these, th- these assets. Um, and I think that is, is not entirely correct. Uh, I think there are starting to be ways for you to really understand the economics of some of these, especially the more mature ones. We've talked a lot, a lot about, um, Ethereum, second largest digital asset. It's a, you know, it, it is a kind of a, it's a blockchain, but you can really kind of model it like a business, like an, it, it's basically a tech company. It's a tech platform that all these applications are building on top of. So we, we do model that at Runa and, you know, kind of an example with Ethereum is people pay Ethereum to, to use and transact on its blockchain. So you can look at those revenues, how much is Ethereum generating those transaction fees? And then you can see its expenses, which is what it's paying people to secure the network, paying, you know, validators uh, and, and stakers and so you can kind of see whether or not it's profitable. Are the fees that people paying more than Ethereum is, you know, expensing and protecting the network? So that that's just kind of one very simple way of looking at it. Um, and there are other kind of ways as you look across different sectors like DeFi or gaming. But uh, I think to to think that all of this is is highly speculative with with no kind of real, uh, you know, investment kind of rigor that can be put behind it is is not is not entirely you know correct. So uh, I think we're going to get better there too, as kind of more valuation frameworks and, um, you know, research comes out uh, along kind of this, this thread. That's a great final point. Alex, really appreciate your time today. Again, those of you that are listening, you can follow them at Runa Digital Assets on LinkedIn. Uh, Alex Bodie, as well as the head of client and portfolio solutions there. So please reach out to them on LinkedIn, connect with them. As you can see, very transparent, very open, willing to have a conversation with pretty much anyone and help them proceed forward and and succeed in the market as best they can. Uh, But Alex, really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.